This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see so many people here. Um, this is the fifth of our in our series of Assessment Today seminars, which are presented by Cambridge Assessment Network. And we're particularly pleased also to have back with us Tim Oates today. A couple of words about Tim just to tell you who he is for those of you who have not attended before. Tim is the Group Director of Assessment Research and Development here in Cambridge Assessment. Uh, Tim's been with us three years now and has come from from AQA where he was Head of Research and Statistics. And among his many other duties he carries out is that he is an advisor to the UK Government on um, policy, education policy. His talk today, as you'll see, is formative assessment revisited. Uh, Tim's asking the question, have we realised any benefit from the focus on assessment for learning? And I won't tell you any more about it because Tim is one of our most erudite speakers and I'm sure he'll demonstrate that to you today. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Liz. Yes, good afternoon, everybody. And um, okay, there's a bit of arrogance in the title, formative assessment revisited, as if people aren't visiting it at the moment. Of course, they are internationally. There's a great deal of work going on in the UK on assessment for learning. Um, There are some colleagues in the audience who are key proponents of assessment for learning and have carried it through in terms of policy and in terms of practice uh, in England. And internationally, there's growing interest in assessment for learning. So it's going on as we are here today. It's revisited in the sense in which I decided to revisit it and look at the, the totality of the evidence associated with assessment for learning. Where are, we, where are we with the body of evidence around assessment for learning? Um, and it seemed to be a suitable kind of uh, question for the, for the network to ask and to set up a discussion around it. And in preparing for this and reading through the literature, and there's a very extensive bibliography at the end of this presentation, so if people want to access the literature, they can... In going through that literature, um, I suddenly realised I was going to be giving a rather different kind of presentation to the one which I thought I would be giving. And I'll explain. I thought it was going to be a simple update. Where are we with assessment for learning? A bit of review of policy nationally and internationally. Look across the um, evidence emerging. See if we can do some research synthesis of the kind which was done by Black and William when they produced in '98 the first pamphlet uh, inside the black box. And I suddenly realised that it wasn't going to be that kind of presentation at all. And there would be an excursion in the first 15 minutes into the philosophy of science. Now, you have to bear with me on this. Um, It's going to get a bit strange, okay? Um, Because what I'm going to look at is, why is it that people are becoming adherents to assessment for learning in the light of the amount of evidence available. Because I think there's lessons that we can draw from science and from other revolutions in understanding social and scientific systems. So I'm going to provide a resume of the original theorization. I'm going to examine the emerging theorization of assessment for learning because it is changing the balance between elements of the original theorization and also changes in the pattern of recommendations associated with what you do on the ground to realise it. That's all changing as people are implementing it and understanding it better. 
I will scrutinise the emerging evidence, but we do need to explain the national and international appeal of assessment for learning. And I want to then focus... I want to look at the, the way in which revision of systems is actually taking place. The revision of education and training systems, the revision of qualifications is being undertaken in the wake of the understandings we're getting from assessment for learning and the implications for awarding bodies, which is an entirely suitable thing for the Cambridge Assessment Network to look at. But it's not just going to be a simple update. And there are three quite dense slides. Now, apart from the controversy around Thomas Kuhn's work and did he actually steal it from a Viennese philosopher, um, it's important to, to actually think about why do we get paradigm shifts? And assessment for learning has been presented both by its proponents and its opponents as a paradigm shift. Why do we get paradigm shifts in big systems, whether it be natural science or social science? And there's a very interesting thing about revolutions in science. And it's to do with the weight of evidence and the type of evidence available. Now, all of this is about the heliocentric and geocentric theories of the solar system. And, um, yes, I bet you didn't think you'd be thinking about that in terms of assessment for learning. Now, there was obviously you know, a huge paradigm battle between those that thought that the sun was at the centre of the solar system and those who thought the earth was at the centre of the solar system. And what's fascinating about it was that the empirical evidence in favour of Copernican theory in terms of heliocentric theories, the sun at the centre of the solar system, it was just not compelling. The empirical evidence was not compelling. One example of that was stellar parallax. Okay? So if we go round the sun at the rate that Copernican theory was suggesting, then if you look up, you should see the stars moving relative to each other. Okay, stellar parallax. But the point is, at the time, there was no notion of just how far the stars are from us, i.e. people thought they were a lot close, closer, therefore stellar parallax would be readily observable. And secondly, the telescopes of the time weren't up to observing it. So notionally, one of the key tests of Copernican theory would be unproblematic observation of stellar parallax. It's not complicated. So they looked and they didn't find it. But still, people adopted Copernican theory. And what Coombe was asking was, why? Why on earth do that? If the evidence, some of the key tests of the theory, actually aren't being endorsed by the empirical evidence? It's a very, very interesting question. And he developed a number of, of interesting ideas. About We're just below halfway down. You've got significant grounds of appeal. The notion of, of, of a, a theory being appealing because of its internal elegance or the idea that it was, it was simpler in terms of explaining a number of phenomena than the complexity that Ptolemaic theory had actually got into, into by the time. I mean, people were navigating around and they were, by and large, bumping into the countries that they meant to. But the kind of rules by which they were doing that were extremely complex. And Copernican theory made that rather more simple. But I've highlighted the key statement here. Until Kepler, a lot later, 
the Copernican theory scarcely improved upon the predictions of planetary position made by Ptolemy thousands of years before. And he talk, Kuhn talks about the aesthetic considerations of theory. What is it that and the sociological processes that drive paradigm revolutions? And I really do think we have to bear this in mind. Why are people engaging in critical debate in, in pretty vitriolic exchanges around assessment for learning versus more traditional assessment regimes? And there's also something quite um, difficult in Kuhn, which is kind of acute, i.e. particular and chronic overtime pessimism. When do we get a, a paradigm shift? Because all the opponents eventually die. <laughs> okay? And that was, uh, that was advocated by a number of more modern uh, philosophers of science as well, like Robert K. Merton. Conversions will occur a few at a time until, after the last holdouts have died, the whole profession will again be practising under a single but now different paradigm. Now, I didn't think I'd be talking about that today, but I think quite a lot of that explains why we see such enthusiasm for assessment for learning. Okay, let's just revisit the fundamentals. Um, Coming from the 98 Review, which was commissioned by the Assessment Reform Group, ARG, and um, there were also accumulated elements of, of knowledge and theory that they had access to, but, but principally it was the 98 Review. And this is my own representation of the key elements drawn from the various leaflets and the subsequent texts. But these are, in essence, it. Learning focus on objectives, so a great deal of clarity in learning programs about what it is the, is the object of learning in a particular learning exchange, whether that be a short exchange or a longer exchange, of a few minutes or a few hours or of an entire course. Opportunities for pupils to do things which enable teachers to understand how the conceptual development of individuals is building up and encouraging pupils to judge themselves in terms of how their conceptual development is building up, not in terms of how they stand relative to others or how they stand relative to other data about groups of learners, whether that group be small or large, be the nation or internationally. So the idea is it's as challenging for those achieving less well to understand what it is that they should do, but it's equally challenging for the most able who have frequently been getting 90% in a test and therefore consider themselves to be at the top. What is it of the 10% that they're not grasping? And it was expressed well in the leaflet as kids who think, I've been a D, I'm always going to be a D, and those who say, I'm an A, therefore I've nothing more to learn. That was well expressed. And to move away from that culture to self-referencing, considering what it is that's challenging... And we know that critically, for even the most able at a particular phase of their education, the bit that they're not grasping may be fundamental to the next stage of their learning, wherein they then experience difficulty. So the move to self-referencing, the orientation to self-referencing, is a fundamental part and has been very neglected as being a part of assessment for learning by many policymakers. And then I've left a gap because, because the, the remaining five in essence, are techniques which then derive from those fundamentals. 
encouraging self-assessment by learners and, and processes of, of peer assessment, providing comments rather than grades, comments oriented on specific objectives, whether the young person or the adult has actually grasped the material which is the precise object of the learning exchange. Wait time, so instead of engaging what's been described as the game of racing through the content, and that's been particularly highlighted as a feature of the national curriculum, pupils knowing that they'll get the answer if they just hold on long enough because the teacher wants to get through the material at an advanced pace. So introducing wait time to enable an understanding of where children actually sit in terms of their understanding and the traffic light system or some analogue of it which doesn't necessarily involve colour. And there's some very interesting stuff on teachers for the first time faced with a group where the teacher teaching the same material previously would have just been going rapidly through the material, unproblematically feeling that all the children were grasping it, suddenly being faced by a class in which the majority of teachers have, of, of students had put up a red in front of them and bringing them up in front, straight up in front, of, in front of them the reality of the genuine pace and uh, sort of pattern of understanding in the learner group. And the encouragement of exploratory question, questioning by teachers, genuinely probing conceptual development. That's something that I'll return to in just a minute because I think... A focus on that constitutes some of the radical uh, sort of re-theorisation of AFL which is coming through. What about the implementation research that we've got to hand? We've got beyond the black box. We've got the Oxford and Medway project which was put in place very responsibly um, in order to actually examine with a great deal of precision the recommendations of inside the black box. We had ESRC commissioning a summative a project on the summative use of formative assessment. And we've got large-scale, widespread local authority and school implementation in this country. Then we've got take-up in other settings, and I've looked particularly at literature from Northern Ireland, Scotland, Jersey. That's not, the, not New Jersey, but the island of Jersey, and Hong Kong and New Zealand. So there's an awful lot happening And I, I think this is, this, I mean, it is compelling stuff. You, you, you get stuff like this. If you go in and look at attempts to implement assessment for learning into particular schools where the strategy has been, has been uh, wheeled out, you get things like this, which are, which are you know, self-report from teachers, self-report from pupils, all talking about the extent to which AFL is indeed affecting a fundamental reorientation of curriculum and assessment predicated on some real needs to develop autonomous learners, those engaged in activities which display intrinsic motivation and not extrinsic motivation, and preparation for the next stages of progression. To make us work hard but independent learning, forget it. That's what the school was engaged in, in terms of its high-performance agenda. But AFL is actually beginning to confront this. Now, I attempted a genealogy, and I think it's, it's possibly defective, but it's the world as I see it, and it's certainly open to challenge. There was all this stuff on authentic assessment in the States, and so there was a big drive um, from small groups of researchers 
and policymakers in terms of moving away from uh, more measurement-oriented approaches to getting at the reality of learning programs, getting at the reality of cognitive development of young children, and ensuring that both the assessment and learning programs are engaging with individual and societal needs. Now, I've drawn a dotted line because the authentic assessment movement in the States has, has not petered out, um, but it hasn't had the, the galloping success that those original proponents of it thought that it would. During the 1960s and 70s, coursework became critical in this country, and by coursework then was meant something very different to what we mean by coursework now in this country. Coursework then was about setting activities which were located in the reality of the school, in the curriculum of the school, in the reality of the children, and you could gather evidence which would authentically capture what they produced whilst they were in whilst they were progressing through that learning programme. Now we've seen in controlled assessment, um, replacing coursework, essentially the kind of assessment activities which are designed to maximise reliability of teacher-set activities. Something very, very different. We also had the assessment by objectives movement, and we had a considerable em- emphasis in a lot of teacher training on formative assessment, And Ofsted at the time said that formative assessment, this was during the sort of late 70s, early 80s, was one of the least developed aspects of teacher practice in schools. And there was considerable effort devoted to doing something about that. Um, Nuttall did work on the extent to which we could look at learning and by recourse to state-of-the-art learning theory actually identify those kind of practices within learning which would encourage retention over time of the components of learning and not merely surface learning. And, and, and he was working with Gibson with others to look at intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. What is it that will uh, encourage learners to work through material, thinking about why it is that they wanted to acquire it and how they could really generate within themselves deep understanding which they would carry forward in their life, both in terms of life within education and life beyond. And there was a, you know, a really good, solid literature on that. And that then fed into assessment for learning in terms of its promotion by the assessment reform group and the drive forward in policy following the um, publication of Inside the Black Box. But now peculiar things are happening. And by peculiar, I mean different and specific. We've got the appropriation of assessment for learning by the Department for Children, Schools and Families in this country. And I would refer to it as appropriation. They have taken the principles of assessment for learning and built it into, putatively, reputedly, have built it into a whole series of policy and technical recommendations, and I'll come on to those. My view is they do not embody assessment for learning as originally proposed um, by Black and William in the inside and beyond the black box, nor does it encapsulate the lessons coming out of the research that they synthesised for those documents. 
It really is rather different in its balance and in its content, and I'll come on to that. There was then the Oxford and Medway projects, and Dylan talks about there being well over a 1,000 inquiries, expressions of interest from institutions to which they have responded. And we can multiply that by the number of academics working on AFL in higher education, working with local authorities and with individual schools, um, stimulating particular instances of implementation of assessment for learning. Can we quantify that? No, not with any certainty. And because of the amount of activity and the way in which it is dispersed around the higher education and the education system. And then it's particularly been looked at in Hong Kong, New Zealand, Scotland, and in Jersey. And those bodies of evidence I will look at. The trouble is, the outcomes evidence, in terms of what impact this has on student attainment, as measured by traditional measures, is both thin and contradictory. And a bit like stellar parallax... The idea was that you'd be looking for a considerable improvement in student attainment predicated on the kind of effect sizes which were quoted in the original leaflet inside the black box. I'll come on to the order order of magnitudes that that they were and the order of magnitude that we're actually seeing. And in essence, we're just not seeing it. But that does mean what... that, That does... It is critical. What do you mean by outcomes? Because if you want to see it purely in the outcomes data, then you would be a sceptic in respect of assessment for learning. There are other sorts of data and information that have been collected on student perceptions, teacher perceptions, qualitative analysis of learning exchanges, which I believe we have to have recourse to, which would then give us more faith in assessment for learning being something that we should carry forward. But if you just look at the outcomes evidence, it's thin and contradictory. I'll come on to it. And Black and William now acknowledge the linked enthusiast enthusiast effect and higher quality teacher effect. And one of the things they say about Bowler's work on GCSE mathematics, which is compelling and very interesting, although based on only two schools, is that it still could be the case that Jo Bowler found in the two schools that she looked at, even though her her theorisation of why one school was superior to another in terms of the way they were wheeling out mathematics, even though her theorisation was powerful, it could just be that you had more enthusiastic teachers of higher quality engaged in the initiative, and that led to higher GCSE scores. But look at what we've got in terms of assessment for learning. We've got a very sound research base in terms of the original work. It was based on 580 studies, 250 of those passed the inclusion criteria for the literature from the literature study, study survey through into the synthesis. 250 were used. But what are the tests that we should apply to it? Well, any good test in science would involve replication. If an effect is observable out of a set of events and we want to reproduce that, let's go and look at it experimentally in some other settings that we want to uh, actually affect and see whether we can reproduce the effect. Replication is critical in both social science and natural science. But replication is quite difficult. Uh, A lot of those were international studies, and we know that the context in England is not the same as the context in other countries. We know the historical context in England now is not what it was five years or 20 years ago. So we have to look at the contextual variables. What is going on? 
and we have to look at the kind of effect size that we think we can yield. What is it that we should be looking for? We were just discussing this morning that effect size is pretty critical if it's involving one mark, and that one mark is the difference between getting an A or a B on a, a qualification. Um, effect size is not that critical if it's only affecting 1% of a population actually getting a particular outcome in a learning program. So we've got to look very critically at this issue of effect sizes. So how did, how did um, Black and William calculate their effect size? That's what they used, a kind of appropriation of Cohen's D. It's quite sensible. But they then translated it, quite, again, quite responsibly. Um, and they used a similar version. They're not identical in terms of Oxford and Medway. And they converted it quite sensibly into what it would mean in terms of exam grades at GCSE. So what the literature review and synthesis suggested was that we would see effect sizes between 0.4 and 0.7. That's about the largest ever reported for a sustained intervention in assessment and the curriculum. And if it was 0.4 at the low end of that, it would mean that an average student would move from around about the 50th to the 35th centile. That if it was in the, in the middle of that, it would improve performance by one and two grades. That was changed in, this, remember this is 98, in 2003, after Oxford and Medway, it was the same um, effect size was quoted as being at least one grade. So that's, that's different. And I haven't quite got to the bottom with uh, Dylan as to why it's changed. And um, 0.7 would raise England in Tim's from the middle rank of 41 to the top five. So we're looking at pretty significant, I mean, really significant changes. And, of course, most countries these days are quite concerned about where they are in international surveys, whether it be PISA or Tim's or Pearl's, uh, with rank order preoccupying people. Now, what's very interesting is that those effect size, sizes did not appear in the Oxford and Medway study, which was a very carefully constructed study intended to look at replication of the effect in the UK setting. And the fact that the, the magnitude of effect size was not realised was then used by a government advisor to say on a number of public fat platforms... We've tried AFL as advocated by the Assessment Reform Group and it hasn't worked. Now, I don't think there are any grounds for saying that, but nor do I think there, are, there is a compelling case from these data to move wholesale to assessment for learning. So I don't think she was right to say that. And I'll come on to that again in terms of um, what the... Uh, appropriation of AFL looks like in terms of the DCSF. The majority of the effect sizes were between 0.2 and 0.3, and so on and so on and so on. So, although it's not as great, an estimated improvement of one half grade per pupil per subject is possible. And then if that was replicated across a whole school, it would raise the performance of a school at the 20, 25th centile nationally into the upper half. Again, that's a very significant kind of improvement in terms of an education system as a whole. So even if those were the kind of assess 
effect sizes that we would find, it's still worth doing. Okay? But it's still not what was originally intended to be yielded out of or promised from the original, uh, original work. Now, one, one bit of confounding evidence was a, a well-designed study done by um, Emma Smith and Stephen Gorard. And this caused a great deal of controversy, not least because people read it and thought, OK, assessment for learning doesn't work then. And they were very careful in their text to say that is not what they were saying. But nonetheless, the press picked it up and indeed researchers um, were very concerned about the impact of the Smith and Gorard paper. It was a nicely designed study. They, they took in one school 104 pupils in year seven and there was an intervention, uh, comments only marking and um, comments only feedback, sorry, a suspension of marking, and um, a good range of measures looking at prior scores and key stage three test outcomes. And, and they were very careful in that quote in, in there to say it doesn't fully test the overall notion that formative feedback is, is defective in any way. Um, what they say is if you roll out an initiative like that, it can, it, its effect can be attenuated by a load of other contextual variables going on in terms of teaching practice and the system as a whole. And that's serious. So you roll out a technique and expect it to yield considerable benefit, but you don't engage with so many other dimensions of the system in which the school is located, the system within the school which is operating, the set of incentives and drivers, and the embedded practice in the institution. And, and Black and William rightly said, high-quality formative assessment is not only about the suspension of marking alone, it requires high-quality probing and feedback. And the GTCE pointed to the fact this was poorly contextualised implementation of AFL. Just dropping a technique into schools doesn't work is the fundamental conclusion from which you can draw from this study. Not that AFL is fundamentally defective in terms of its theorization of the direction in which we should take assessment. Now, you can already see that's why I'm interested in Kuhn. This is a complex picture which is building up. You try and test assessment for learning at the level of the techniques, and you don't get out what you expect. So what's going on? You believe that you've got something really promising and good on your hands. What do you do? And this is beginning to be a very complex theory in terms of the implementation of a major reorientation of the system in terms of assessment. This is not about dropping techniques here and there into practice. And this is the kind of thing that the, you will find in the press. This is the kind of thing that government is very concerned about. Essentially, you also see here attenuated effects so, yes, there was an mass apparent massive increase in educational attainment when national testing was introduced, and this is key stage two, and this is potential at the, the percentage at level four and above. So it's a specific measure of the key stage two tests, so for 11-year-olds in our system. And 
you know, what it putatively says is the massive school improvement standards agenda, school in, combined with the school improvement agenda, despite escalating uh, investment of time and resources, actually is having a significant issue at its heart in terms of plateauing of, of outcome. And so one of the things is that you know, this, this kind of thing causes officials to begin to look elsewhere for things that they can bring into national activity and national policy making to, to try and get the same kind of gains that they, we see down here. Now, there's probably something quite interesting going on down here, um, which I could go into in a great deal of detail, but I won't. Just things like the test, Texas test effect that Dylan William has written about. Um, the idea that you change the measure, you'll get a depression in attainment, and then suddenly you'll find that um, there's a rapid rise in attainment as people begin to teach to that particular assessment. And then you suddenly get a plateauing of outcomes. And indeed, if you get people to take the original test that you used to use, you'll find they have a very depressed score on that. It's also the case that we just introduced the national curriculum at that point. So the system was in coming to grips with a, a radical system revision of the kind that occurred at the end of the Second World War with the disruption of, of schooling. We were probably coming out of a dip in the performance of our uh, national uh, system in the wake of massive system revision. So this is a very odd period here. Um, but what it meant is that here, politicians and policy advisors are looking around for stuff. They're looking around for things to try and get the kind of improvement which was putatively going on here in terms of underlying student performance. Now, I think what happened was that um, AFL was um, actually seen as something, you know, the effect sizes are large. Yes, let's think about how we can integrate AFL into... Um, the national policy arrangements around national assessment and around the initiatives. How can we do that? And something called MPP, Monitoring Pupil Progress, was developed and trialled by the Qualifications and Curriculum Authority, where I was previously head of research. And that, that's been renamed in recent years APP, Assessing Pupil Progress. And the notion is that that's a formative assessment process where, where children look at things called assessment focuses and they determine whether they are actually meeting the criteria expressed in those assessment focuses through examining their own work, discussing the work of others and seeing where they lie on the curriculum objectives embedded in the national curriculum and where they lie in relationship to the level statements associated with the national curriculum. So what was said was it, it, takes, it takes time for, assessment, for assessing pupil progress to embed, but there are immense benefits. The tracking system is now based on richer information allowing us to make appropriate interventions. Periodic judgments, curriculum targets, report writing. Um, oh, sorry for the typo. Um, and, uh, but look at the language set here. This is not about probing conceptual understanding, looking at 
uh, student progression in terms of the conceptual demands of particular subjects. It would be argued by the proponents that, that it is about that because as you move through the national curriculum, you, you are kind of tracking the conceptual understanding of children. But really, this is all about... This is about tracking. This is about interventions. This is about judgments, periodic judgments, in order to sort out whole-class curricular targets. This is not the same kind of language set as assessment for learning, and I think it also betrays a very different orientation. This is the language of the initiatives. This is the language of the policy initiatives which preceded the appropriation of assessment for learning by the policy machine. And this was all wrapped up in the what, what are called in this country the, the, the making good progress targets. Okay, uh, sorry, the making good progress pilots, which have a whole series of components, of which assessment for learning is a part. So beneath that are the key elements of the making good progress pilots, progression targets, and levels within national curriculum levels are critical within that. Essentially, the idea is we're concerned that not enough people are attaining the levels. And there are a proportion of people who are slow in attaining the, the, the levels. And we can, we can get them to attain those faster and obviously give greater equity in the system um, if we have progression targets, if APP, um, if APP supports those targets, if we then attach a progression premium to it. So we attach money to efforts to raise people rapidly through the levels, those children particularly who are struggling. Assessment for learning was particularly associated with the rigorous monitoring using assessment, assessing pupil progress. We also had the single level tests initiative, so new forms of national curriculum testing, and progression tutoring. So the idea is if you are behind expectations, then you could have up to 20 hours of one-to-one study on entry to the key stage, key stage concerned. Now, assessment for learning went, was, was, went into that kind of policy mix. So remember what the original theoretical assumptions were of, of assessment for learning. This, this, this is rather different, actually. And these are the statements around good assessment for learning, accurate assessment, fair assessment, reliable assessment. Only then do we get on to useful assessment in terms of unpacking conceptual development and a focus assessment, unlocking blocks to progression. Now, what would be said by those in charge of this policy is, yes, well, we've got it in there. It's, it's, you know, it's alongside these other things. But the key thing, what is the balance of priorities? What's the perceptions of schools about what really counts in terms of league table position, in terms of getting people to particular levels, irrespective of whether it's deep learning or surface learning? And continuity of assessment in terms of transfer. Again, I think what is happening here is assessment for learning with some fundamental commitments which have integrity based on the research background, are being put into a policy mix where it's a subordinate ingredient, not a dominant ingredient. Now, why this is important to this whole thing about paradigm revolutions and pilots 
is that the national curriculum assessment arrangements were not suspended in these pilots. They could have been. The law allows that to happen under powers to innovate, but they were not. So teachers were essentially operating within the same orthodoxies, the same pressures, the same incentives, and told to do additional things and different things. And it's not surprising, out of that, you will not see the same kind of effect sizes. You won't see the same kind of effect as is described in the literature associated with assessment for learning. It's the mix into which assessment for learning goes which appears to be critical. That's particularly what the Gorard work tells us. And the theorization of assessment, which is now presented nationally, is this, three assessment viewpoints, day-to-day assessment, periodic assessment, and transitional assessment, with the idea that perhaps one or two techniques can serve all of these purposes. Now, I would argue these are the kind of explanations for the attenuated effects which we see when we go looking for the kind of effect size that we think we should find in assessment for learning and don't find it. This is the same thing as looking for stellar parallax and not finding it. I mean, again, this, this didn't just cause people to say, oh, well, that's it for Copernicus then. They thought, no, there's something going on. So we will continue, because of other features of this theorization, to drive forward on this as a dominant theory. And this is, this is the complexity of AFL. The, com- the mountains of compelling evidence aren't there. But the notion that this is worthy of consideration, an adequate and appropriate examination through well-designed surveys, I believe is rightly there. And what we have are context effects and overdetermination. If you drop AFL into the, the heady mix of existing accountability measures and top-down initiatives, you're most likely going to have attenuated effects. The lack of suspension of national assessment arrangements and the fa- failure to invoke power to innovate were serious. And the pilots were, were almost certainly not protracted enough to actually begin to fully understand how assessment for learning should be genuinely rolled out as a national initiative sponsored by the state. What we probably are seeing is a surface transformation of practice. And that gives, that gives us pause for thought in terms of just the general problem of dissemination of complex reorientation of practice, which we're familiar with time after time after time which gives rise, as we know, in in certain societies to change fatigue because one initiative is not implemented with sufficient resource, sufficient effort, sufficient time and sufficient space, gets subject to context effects and overdetermination. What it leads rather impatient policymakers to do is to say, that didn't work then, let's have another go with something else and try and push that through as quickly as the thing which should have been pushed through with greater care and greater resource. And we've got this rather peculiar literature emerging of dichotomy and demonization. And I really like this quote, actually, because it points fingers to both sides of the debate, really. I'll come back to value-neutral science in just a second. 
Now, Taras is actually a commentator in theor- and, and working on theorization of assessment and learning within the HE context, and, and is kind of looking down on this debate which is going on in respect of primary and secondary schooling. Now, I've put up there, well, does that mean we should have some kind of value-neutral discourse in respect of assessment? You know, that we don't have to be on the side of a more traditional expression of the way in which assessment and qualification should be used for target setting or assessment for learning. That, you know, somehow it's not possible to be in one camp or another. Is there such thing as value-neutral science? Or things like, you know, you know atomic weapons aren't particularly value-neutral. <laughs> you know, there are whole areas of the technological application of science which aren't value-neutral. There are techniques that derive from our theorization of learning and theorization of assessment which are very specific and aren't value neutral. They carry with them the values which are embodied in the theory behind it. Assessment for learning has all sorts of embedded values within it. So I don't think we can have value neutral science or value neutral assessment instruments. So it is right to talk about this as, a, as an exchange over paradigms. But it's not good that we get embedded in, in rather vitriolic exchanges which don't actually unpack the underlying assumptions, values, and the underlying theorization of the competing camps. We, have to, we need to you know, really lay those bare for both learners to make decisions, parents to make decisions, and for educationists and policymakers to make decisions. And I've just got a few quotes here in terms of what's been happening in terms of AFL in Scotland. What's very interesting here are the measures... I'll come on to this in a second. In terms of what's happening in terms of practice, what the, what the teachers think in terms of practice, what the pupils think in terms of their educational experiences. Now, this refers to the whole idea of another short-lived hurricane, and I've already described how critical I feel about things which are implemented in a half-hearted way without due, due care and attention to how a very promising innovation could be overdetermined by existing arrangements unless you carefully set up the innovation in such a way that you can probe deeply how the initiative will work. And what's interesting about this and the, the following quotes is the extent to which it betrays the idea of a commitment to changing the system. So it's a bit like... you know. We will move to Copernicus because of various bits of it, its aesthetic appeal, its putative ability to resolve contradictions, even though the empirical body of evidence is not compelling, we will have a go because the contradictions we're trying to resolve in the systems are quite pernicious ones and the equity issues we're trying to confront are very, very real ones. What's interesting is these are the outcomes which the Scots are looking for in terms of seeing whether it's successful or not. They're not just looking for improved exam grades or improved performance on tests. If that's the only test which you apply to the initiative, then you won't find the evidence. What they were looking at is this kind of evidence. Levels of pupil engagement, confidence and enthusiasm, reports of deeper learning, particular impact on children who find learning hard, increases in engagement, confidence and enthusiasm in teachers. Now, we can quantify those. We can look at those. We have sophisticated techniques in our social si- battery of techniques in social science for looking at those. So it shouldn't 
AFL shouldn't live or die by the outcomes data alone. Now, these are other sorts of outcomes which we should look at. But I don't think we should eschew or ignore the hard outcomes as well. We need to address why it is we're not deriving them. Because actually, rather than writing off AFL, it may point to aspects of our system which we should reform and elements of pressure on schools that we should relieve. And I just, again, in- include these. But, but again, looking at the language set, describe their experience as a process of rediscovery, of remembering what attracted to them what attracted them to become teachers and the joy of watching learners grow in confidence and competence. And, I mean, she talks of, of teachers perhaps have, having rose-tinted spectacles in terms of memories of better times, hence the quotation marks. But nonetheless, it's a real effect, a sense of optimism and commitment to the approach. Things are unfolding in the classroom which they like. But we have to test that by hard outcome evidence as well. But we might not find what we're looking for because of problems of contextual variables swamping the practice and overdetermination of those other factors. And this hints at this. This discourse in this particular research as well hints at that. The ideological commitment of many teachers to learner-centred classroom strategies, a value-based commitment, and it's been problematic. And they've, they point particularly to issues around the culture associated with national tests um, and other aspects of the accountability agenda. The middle paragraph is worth reading because that begins to hint at the role of assessment agencies. Now, I don't know what your reaction is, but I'm actually, I actually find that quite problematic. Um, what we find in, in other areas of human endeavour and performance in which we deploy very sophisticated assessment, we use a range of assessment instruments. We expect people to be as good at producing outcomes in supported and supportive learning settings as in relatively unsupported contexts in which they're expected to reproduce knowledge because in their professional lives, they would be expected to reproduce that knowledge in the same kind of way, under pressure, drawing in a sophisticated way on large bodies of retained information, synthesizing it in order to derive diagnoses, explanations for events, and so on. And of course, I'm referring to medical education. Now, that may be for an elite, but there we look at the combination of assessment techniques, the combination of pedagogic approaches. There is as much social learning in advanced medical programs as there is seeming traditional learning processes. And again, we've got a bit of dichotomization going on here. The first paper in mass is a timed response. Actually, is there anything wrong in that? Because if we're expected to acquire large bodies of knowledge which will enable us to progress onto the next stage of learning, actually secure deep learning, then reproduction of knowledge surely has a role to play. 
So within here, we've got, we've got some of that, that problematic demonization and, and dichotomy, which was referred to in the earlier article. And now I'm just reaching my closing comments, really. So, so this Marsh's work, Colin Marsh's work, really, really confirms, I think, my view that actually the evidence base is incredibly patchy and thin where we would want it to be pretty exhaustive, comprehensive and compelling. And I think we need to look for why that's the case because it would tell us not only about the characteristics of AFL but critically the characteristics of the context in which we're trying to introduce AFL and how we're doing it, how we're trialling it, how we're piloting it. And then it would give us some general insights into how we undertake innovation more generally. And this reinforces this, the tensions between formative and summative duties in the dual role as instructors and assessors. There are contradictions and tensions, even if you get it right, in the multiplicity of roles which teachers carry, something which Ted Ragg always used to argue for in a very compelling way. And indeed, you know, Paul Black argues that the potential of classroom assessment to raise standards will never be fully realised until the regimes of assessment for the purposes of accountability and certification of pupils are radically reformed. Well, we've got to look at what that would consist of. Now, the thing is that the AFL positioning... 2000 to 2009, actually doesn't really express that particularly well. Originally it was a revolutionary challenge, and then Wynne Harland did her work on formative assessment used summatively with colleagues from Cambridge and elsewhere. But that led to the assessment reform group really saying, I think they, from all accounts of talking to them individually over a long period of time, I think there was a decision to say, we, we aren't going to, to, to manage to encourage abandonment of the assumptions behind the kind of agenda that we've seen over the last 10 years in terms of the standards and school improvement agenda overnight or you know, somehow those assumptions being suspended. So we've got to argue for the compatibility of assessment for learning with national assessment. Uh, and, and that led, has led in policymakers' mind to the possibility of integrating AFL in an unproblematic way into the good, into the good progress, making good progress pilots. But I would argue they're just incredibly uneasy bedfellows because of different theoretical assumptions which lie at the heart of the two approaches. I don't think they're capable of easy, easy reconciliation and that should be recognised in the piloting work. I think it's, as I've I said before, I think it's quite wrong that the existing national assessment arrangements were not suspended in the pilots. So we've, we've had, as a result, APP and SLTs, which putatively embody AFL, but I would argue strongly that they don't. We've had Gordon Stobart working on the validity of AFL, but actually arguing most recently at a seminar that in terms of, of an expert group's deliberations on what we should do on national assessment, don't even engage with assessment for learning. We'll get on with doing that separately you get on with reforming national assessment. Okay. So the notion that, actually, we'd much rather you stayed away from it now, we'll get on with implementing it through 
close work with institution, it's getting a nice dynamic of its own underneath the system. And what's very interesting is that Dylan now is, is, has really prioritised this issue of deep probing of the developing conceptual understanding of young people. He's moved very much away from the techniques which are associated with AFL to talking about the deficiencies of teacher practice in one-to-one exchange with students and in exchange with groups of students. The idea of using deep probing to understand how an individual child is moving through subject material. And that is becoming the, the core component of AFL in Dylan's mind. So what is it that we're actually seeking, really seeking to transform? And Greg Brooks, ten years ago now, said actually standards of reading have essentially been flat since systematic surveys began. There was a bit of a dip after the Second World War. But through all of the massive changes in the structure of education in this country, all of the independent surveys, which you can just about link up even though they're different, in terms of the instruments that they used, standards were pretty flat. Ralph Tabra used to say that. He used to draw a flat line and say, that's educational standards. I'm not saying that radical interventions can't improve things. But what's critical is that the surveys of reading suggested that despite radical structural alteration of the education system in this country, there wasn't a massive impact on reading standards. What is it that we're trying to change? And Spillane argues that teaching is a technology that is especially resilient to change. I think we're arguing and seeing far more from the research literature that what we're about is not school effectiveness, we're about teaching effectiveness. We may have got the wrong unit of intervention in the school improvement agenda. Because, you know, Hattie's work looks at the magnitude of the effect which derives from having a good teacher or not. Now, of course, you know, good managers in school schools enable good teachers to be well supported and good teachers to be appointed. But our focus has been very much at school level. And in adopting curriculum change through assessment and using qualifications to drive assessment-led change, as we've seen through so many aspects of the national curriculum and the reform of 14 to 19 education and so on, there's been an unproblematic assumption that that changing assessment arrangements will ineluctably lead to a change in the quality and form of pedagogy in the exchange between the managers of learning, the teachers managing the learning process and the, and the pupils. Well, I would argue that those assumptions are highly questionable. And Swan and Brown remind us that past records for curriculum initiatives show extraordinarily modest levels of pedagogical implementation. And in essence, that's what Gorard has shown us in, in dropping AFL as a, as a marking technique into a classroom. That, that, that's what that research shows us. Do that and that alone, and you won't yield the kind of outcomes that you expect. So this is my final slide, um, and I'll just talk for a couple of minutes now. What are the implications for awarding bodies? Well, they're already doing things, we are already doing things, in terms of, of formative assessment. We're trying to understand it for a start and trying to understand it in a sophisticated way, both in terms of its content, the way in which its proponents are better understanding it as they 
are working on it and the way in which the evidence is emerging from the widespread implementation um, in its full genealogy, all of those separate roots, um, which are a bit like you know, the genealogy of the human race, a common genetic base but extraordinary diversity after a relatively short period of time. So technology-based formative solutions have been generated. Escape, Richard Kimball's work, Achieve, developed jointly between Cambridge Assessment and Heinemann. Very interesting stuff. Pearson's taken forward, which MIT did in mathematics, formative assessment tools, encouraging kids to do things that they can just do at home. If they want to have a crack at something, they can do it. And the number of times they ask for support in answering a particular question is logged by the machine and is available to the teacher. And you can see as their conceptual development develops on certain items, they ask for less and less support. Very, very interesting. Should we try and develop AFL-neutral examinations? Because if examinations are a Frankenstein monster and summative assessment is a, be- you know, a, a terrible beast that will actually lead to the suppression of AFL, maybe we need to take responsibility for looking at what our examinations are doing. We have to meet national criteria that are laid down by the regulator. So should we be questioning our qualifications in terms of whether they are damaging of AFL? It's an interesting question, which we're not... not we have engaged in it. I'm interesting to know whether it's a sensible project. And we could develop qualification packages like they were developed in the past. Suffolk Science, Ridgeway, History, where the learning program, the assessment and the tech, textbooks all hung together very, very well. The, the kind of potency of, of Schmidt's concept of coherence where everything lines up, the teaching materials, the teacher continuing professional development, the initial teacher training, the, the driver's incentives, the assessment, the curriculum. And that is, I believe, an antidote to false dichotomies. So perhaps we should look at the extent to which our qualifications underdetermine learning programmes, i.e., what I mean by that is, everybody has said, you know, modular qualifications, brilliant, and you know the extent to which that will raise the performance of bo- lazy boys who previously it all to, left it all to the end. Um, and so there's now a call for linear qualifications to try and address that. Well, maybe that will help with some schools able to um, encourage conceptual development over the first year in a way which is not possible, having broken the AS and the A2 into two separate qualifications effectively but will it always lead to high quality learning exchanges wherein boys don't always leave it to the last moment and so on and so on so you know qualifications may determine learning programs but they they pretty much underdetermine it they don't overdetermine it so you can't really in, you know, completely revolutionize teaching practice just through introducing new qualifications or new assessment And maybe awarding bodies need to enter into new relationships with schools and local authorities so that delivering inset and developing qualifications packages which genuinely embody radical approaches to learning and encapsulate the outcomes can be supported by awarding bodies, directly supporting schools and local authorities. Now, that's really where I want to end. Um, There's all this stuff. I mean, this is the stuff I've been through. There's a lot. Um, it's there so you can access it. Um, but I hope you found that interesting. I mean, uh, the issue is not just where we are with assessment for learning, but why is it 
that we are where we are? What is happening to it? How is it that it's changing itself as its proponents begin to look at how it's rolling out and learning that it's to do with the quality of the questioning that is occurring between teachers and pupils and probing of conceptual understanding? And how is it being appropriated by policy machines and, I think, distorted in the process? And how is it that we remain committed to it by virtue of a whole series of outcomes which can be seen in the qualitative data and the accounts of students and teachers, but not present in the stuff which many people place most importance or status, attach most importance and status to, which is the hard outcomes data. It was interesting when, when ministers stood up and announced kind of their commitment to assessment for learning, it was tracking systems, which was the focus of, of the policy announcements. The idea that you can collect evidence on individuals and, and present it in documents or in, on, a, on, a, on a machine. And, and that's the thing that will unlock more attainment in the system. So, yes, the language of assessment for learning, assessment of learning, learning for assessment, it, it is important that, that what was, was meant at the time by those, those various terms. And, and assessment of learning, of course, was also discussed in terms of you, you don't fatten an animal by endlessly weighing it, I mean, to express it crudely. You know, that metaphor was used at the time. I mean, the idea was to ensure that assessment was more radically engaging in conceptual development and that it was, in essence, supportive of pedagogy rather than contradictory to it. But, but no, tracking was what it was about, if you remember the national announcements. And, 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 and that, that was, I, I think that was fund, fundamentally confusing to schools in terms of coming to the, the assessment for learning literature, the research, when they were investigating it as to, you know, why should I be interested in this? Well, this doesn't give me a tracking system, and, but this is what the state is saying you know, we should be engaging in. So, yeah, those tensions are e- extremely acute in, in respect of, of, of this bit. Our tracking system is now based on richer information allowing us to make appropriate intervention. Well, actually, largely it was about accumulating an awful lot of evidence and then wondering what on earth you can do with it, not least... It's actually difficult to find your way through it. Hence, you know, Heinemann and other organisations trying to find ways of displaying it on screen so that you could actually find your way through it. That, was, that, was, you know, that, that wasn't assessment for learning. That it didn't embody the fundamentals which I put up on, uh, on, on about five slides in. OK, I mean, the, the, then, then the second point about the, the, the way in which the, um, the, the possibilities were were lost in terms of the false oppositions within the debate. I just think it's still early days. I mean, rather than it being us being well into the implementation of assessment for learning, I think it's still very early days. We've, and we're, we're, we haven't yet thought responsibly, both us as researchers and policymakers, those, those funding pilots, about, about what pilots would look like of all this stuff. There have been some very, very thoughtful interventions by academics in terms of working with schools, working with cluster schools, working on particular projects in Scotland and so on. But they still manifest tensions between the systems which are, the, you know, the contextual variables which derive from existing arrangements. It, 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 you have to pr- protect, as it were, you have to protect and nurture a generation of, of, of teachers who are working within the new paradigm. Um, and that's where it's, that, that, that comment of Kuhn's is so fascinating you have to wait for all the old scientists to, to die before you get a paradigm revolution. 
that's a bit challenging. <laughs> you know, to, to the, the, the sense is it, it's an ideological commitment as well as a scientific commitment. And, 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 and these kind of changes take time. Gathering the evidence, understanding what it is that you're doing in terms of interventing and intervening in these systems. This is a longer-term initiative and a longer-term program of transformation of practice than even those trying to pilot it would suggest. And again, I think Stephen Goddard was very responsible. He said, no, this is just a contribution. This isn't a one-off, you know, small-scale refutation of the whole of the theorization of assessment for learning. This is an interesting bit of contradiction, an interesting bit in the jigsaw. Um, and rather than ap- approaching it with antipathy, it should be welcomed as, as yet another very tiny piece in a very large jigsaw that we're trying to construct. So, yeah, a whole series of decisions were taken by the ARG. Mistakes were probably made, but some very good projects were commissioned. Everybody's working extremely hard. But none of us, in essence, I think, probably fully understand the project in which we're engaged. I think we're in a very interesting place, and it's going to be extremely interesting to see where we move forward from. But I hope you found that uh, at least an intriguing glance at where we are with assessment for learning. Okay, thank you very much, Tim. Excellent. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.